Okay, everyone, places and action. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You talking to me? Here looks like you boys have seen a lot of action. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Why so serious? I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. This is the Cinema Plus Podcast, brought to you by More Movies. Hello. You're listening to the Cinema Plus Podcast, brought to you by moremovies.co.uk. In this episode, we're talking about one of my all-time favourite films, 1985's After Hours, directed by none other than Martin Scorsese, and starring the inimitable Griffin Dunn and always fabulous Rosanna Arquette. This is one of Scorsese's least known films, and it is a departure from the often gritty subject matter that he's known for. After Hours is a dark comedy, a story of one man's night in Soho, where everything goes from bad to worse as he tries to navigate the chaos and find his way home. It's a night movie, and very much a New York movie, that stands out for its uniqueness and a more independent and somewhat European feel. I watched this film with my friend and colleague Dave Roberts, who was seeing it for the first time, uh, and we'll go on to talk about this film in some detail, so fair warning if you want to avoid any spoilers. Here's a little clip from an interview in which Scorsese is talking about the film. And I, it had the tone that I liked. It had the character who was guilt-ridden for nothing, basically, which I adored. Uh, well, he's guilt-ridden for everything in my, my, my book, but in any event, uh, the characters he meets, uh, that these characters in a sort of mythology almost that um, are heightened in a way, and it had a perfect setting at Soho in the middle of the night. There's nobody there. Everybody's in these lofts or in nightclubs or something's going on, but it ain't happening in the street. The streets are empty. You can light three or four blocks, do two takes and move on, you know? And so we had control. If, 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 if I was able to have the energy to make another film quickly, and not quickly, but efficiently, we put it that way, this would have been the one. So, Dave, what did you think of After Hours? Yeah, um, I think if you take the film as this is kind of the the third in the kind of indie New York trilogy for Scorsese, you know, you've got Mean Streets and Taxi Driver, and then this kind of wraps it up. But this is far more uh, in the zany comedy territory for for Scorsese and is uh, kind of different in that respect. But um, it takes quite a few twists and turns. It's a bit different throughout. If you watched it on first glance and didn't know it was a Scorsese film, I don't think you'd guess it was a Scorsese film in a way. There are a few clues in the uh, the camera work, especially those sweeping uh, shots that he uses the dolly to come across and then he'll often uh, speed the film up and suddenly he'll pull into someone on a close-up. Those kind of tricks, he's used those kind of tricks before. They're a small clue as to it leading to Scorsese, but I think you're right overall that the subject matter and and the actual type of film is it is a dark comedy and I think that it's not the usual territory for Scorsese. Maybe he touched on it again afterwards with Bringing Out the Dead where yes. Nicolas Cage plays the paramedic. That was years later. That's the same sort of black humour uh, night movie was based in New York. But I think After Hours was possibly a first venture into this sort of, like you say, a zany side of Scorsese. Absolutely. And I, I think he pulls it off magnificently. Um, a very enjoyable film to watch with, with so many points to, to pick up on, really, of of the different directions it goes. It doesn't really stop or, or let go. Yeah. I, I have to start, though, um, with, with Griffin. I mean... What the fuck is with that monobrow? <laughs> I mean, 
Shocking. That that whole, I mean, the suit as well, the uh, the cream suit and the apartment. He's got that real minimalist sort of painting on the wall and the minimalist furniture. He lives on his own. He's kind of lives a very solitary life. Uh, it's very 80s sort of fashion. And then um, suddenly he's enticed into this uh, wild night. You know, he doesn't even see it coming. He goes to see uh, Rosanna Arquette, who at that time was quite a big star, really. In mid-80s, Rosanna Arquette was, was that was, you know, the height of her fame. And another little funny factoid about uh, bringing out the dead later on, uh, that starred uh, her sister. Oh, right, yeah. Patricia Arquette. So he worked with uh, both Arquettes there. I think, yeah, just picking up on, on what you were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, visually the film is um, is quite interesting because we do see the kind of typical Scorsese shots, the those sweeping um, turns, the camera dollies. The, uh, there's a fantastic scene when he's on the telephone where the camera almost goes around 360. the entire head. Yeah. 360, and um, brilliant kind of classic Scorsese cinematography. But layered on top of that, there's a lot of kind of more intimate uh, cinematography I feel in a way which is perhaps not his usual style very kind of rapid movement through some of the stuff you know and uh, there's a lot more space in in this film than I would say he usually gives particularly in his earlier work that trademark kind of visual style like you said speeding up some of that stuff and and it being very frenetic and one minute everything's calm and there's a single shot and a close-up and then suddenly bang the camera's moving again and there's a different perspective in the same scene and griffin's dunn's character delves down to a next level of hell (laughs) each time that happens i say yeah that that says an interesting thing that as he delves deeper into hell the whole film really moves through five or six different kind of stories um stages of the play yeah it's like levels isn't it it's a, yeah it's like a labyrinth level he keeps going that just keeps on going and changing yeah. you'd almost mistake it for a miniseries all the women almost represent the gatekeeper to each level or at least all the characters because you've got the barman and stuff as well but with all that you got Marcy obviously the first one he meets this kind of like the sirens aren't they because they call him in but once he starts to get close to them he's in trouble because they're actually you know deeply deeply disturbed characters all of them in need of some sort of psychological therapy and, and some of them also possibly some anger management classes you know this pretty much nice guy you know um well well is he a nice guy that's a good point actually because there's a couple of things that you sort of learn about him early on and you think he seems like a nice guy and you know he's he's inoffensive but you know as soon as he turns up at the apartment and uh, marcy's not there he starts massaging kiki and suddenly he is you know it's as if he's going to get his rocks on off with her which is a little bit of a a dick move. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, uh, you know, he's he's definitely played as he's supposed to be the nice guy. He's played as a straight guy, but there's definitely elements all throughout it where you think, you know, that's, uh, that's a bit of a dick move, <laughs> you know. He's not a straightforward character, but that is the level I always feel that Scorsese works on, that there is no black and white, it's not simple. He works on these layers of grey, and, and that's what you get from the character, which is fantastic because... You get this fleshed out narrative, you don't quite understand where it's going, but nothing is quite as it seems at any moment, really. 
and everything gets from bad to worse. Definitely. Every time he makes a move, it's like it's like luck, bad luck in particular, is a massive theme here because he's cursed with it. As soon as he gets in that taxi and he puts his money in that little tray and the taxi driver rips off like a madman, uh, careering through the streets and he's flying about in the back seat there and then suddenly the $20 bill flies out a gap in the window and it's like you just couldn't. It's a typical thing to happen. It's like Sod's Law. If anything can go wrong for this guy, it's going to go wrong. You know, I used to love to ride in cab rides at night in New York and Manhattan. Usually at 2.30 in the morning, going like from 86th Street downtown. No cars in the street. You were flying, especially in the summer. The windows would be open, and you were just at the mercy of the cab driver. At his mercy. And it usually, they were playing some kind of music, and I was just hanging on. <laughs> It's the ultimate, uh, you know, comedy of errors in that sense. Yeah, it's it's strange because it plays on, as you say, the comedy of errors kind of thing. It's almost slapstick yeah. in one sense. But then you are playing with the the darker elements and the more dramatic themes. Sure. Which almost contradict each other, but they work so well because it's written so well. And that's what kind of gives it, it's like a, a dramatic farce, you know. Yeah. Which is just fantastic. I mean, once we get past the taxi scene, it just goes and it does go into bedlam. And, and one thing I, you know, was really noting down was the way that Scorsese captures New York City. You know, oh, some of those shots when the taxi first pulls up it's and he gets beautiful. out, and he's framed the, that seat, that street scene, and the way it's lit. That was just like straight out of Taxi Driver. It's like that happened yeah. on the same night. Travis Bickle is out there somewhere you know, taking a fare elsewhere in the city. It looks just, it's, you know, there are really are some really nice uh, compositions in those. And that's what I always loved about this film, that it's a night movie. There's something appealing about a film that only takes place at night or especially over the course of one night because I think there's something to be said for a lot of people in modern civilization, especially Western civilization, if they thought about if they'd ever really had an adventure in their lives, no matter how trivial it may seem, it's probably happened at night because that's when we go out, that's when we socialise. It's like when you're young, uh, you have to go to bed at a certain time. So as soon as you get to a certain age, you're allowed to stay up later. So staying up all night or late at night is it's kind of a rites of passage thing I think a lot of us can relate to. And this was like that typical kind of you go down to Soho, in the middle of the night you should have gone to bed hours ago and you just got 10 times more than you bargained for it's when the adults come out to play isn't it and all the, all the um, weirdos as well and all the you know uptight people and all i think though what, what, what reminded me that i mean scorsese is the master of this but um it reminded me of two things really i think the night thing's a very good point when you shoot films at night you, there's so much more palette to play with um not just yeah it's a big atmosphere yeah not just from a storytelling perspective which i think does open a, a lot of doors but um you can play more with the lights capture a different kind of cinematography which i do think is more aesthetically pleasing yeah um but i think as well it made me very much think how sexy does new york look on screen in the 70s and 80s compared to now if you if you shot a film in new york now it, would, it wouldn't be that great because it's very commercial and um, the big sweeping buildings now yeah i think there's a there's a good point to be made there because in the 70s and 80s even though it was like 
still then one of the biggest cities in the world. I think just just that 30, 40 years ago, there was kind of areas of the city that might be quiet at night because, you know, it was 40 years ago, whereas nowadays, you know, the city that never sleeps probably never sleeps in Soho, in, you know, in all areas. Whereas I get the impression back then when these films were shot, you could turn up with a, a film crew at night and possibly, you know, there wouldn't be that many people around to spoil the shot or, you know. Yeah. And I think you look at the aesthetics of, of this and, you know, it makes you think of Mean Streets, it makes you think of Taxi Driver. It made me think of a film I watched the other week again, uh, The Warriors, you know, oh, yeah. all shot on the urban landscape of New York in that period. And it's got such an aesthetic, such a feel, uh, such a character, just of its own. You take one picture and you go, that's New York, you know it's New York. That is such a character in itself that it brings so much to the film. Which is probably why a lot of people like Scorsese kept on going back to it because it, it was such a yeah. powerful thing to bring to the screen. Absolutely. Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like a sort of Greek adventure, you know, where you've got this central character that is he's not a hero. I suppose he is in a way, but he's, he's definitely a flawed character, as we've discussed. But um, it's like he is entering into these different tests and trials. He's got to deal with all this sexual tension at the start between um, Rosanna Arquette's Marcy and, and also with Kiki in the mix in the apartment. And then when he goes on to the, to the next place, he meets Julie, and she seems really nice at first first uh, but also turns out to be uh, a little bit uh, hard to handle with her uh, obsession with the 60s and the monkeys and also being a very talented uh, portrait artist I mean that, I think that that is the one of the key things running throughout the the art as well as many other motives and it's an interesting film that takes these key items throughout the film and really builds them together in the story that you don't know what something meant in the 20th minute but by the end of the film like uh, like the statue, the statue, the twenty dollar yeah. notes, uh, the the phones, these motives that keep layering up and layering up. One thing I noticed as well, he he keeps going into the bathroom and looking at himself in the mirror. So there's all I don't know some some kind of Greek mythology thing going on there, uh, where he's looking into his own soul. You know, each time. Yeah, I think there's very much a self-reflective kind of ideology behind it and the is this really happening to me and he's really going what is happening um which yeah it's very reminiscent of that i just want to get home and it reflects across the whole film and and every time you go into a scene you're yeah although you don't realize at the time it's very much a kind of this is building towards something that this scene has a purpose yeah, you don't see it coming at first. It's like when one of the very clever ways they do that is when he goes back into the diner because he, he spots Tom the barman in there. He doesn't specify at first that you're in the same diner that he's already jumped out on That's after it. ordering food. But it then it's like a payoff because he asks the guy for water and then he leaves him there and the guy comes over and he gives him his order, which is the burger and the coffee. I thought it was such a, such a good little... Uh, I think that brings into the the circular nature of the film, though, isn't it? Because the whole thing comes back on itself every yeah. time. Keeps, yeah, keeps coming back on itself. Like karma. That's the that's one of the big themes there. Karma coming round and hitting you in the back, and you know, each, each time um, 
he tries to do the right thing, he ends up in an unexpected situation that uh, gets completely blown out of proportion, makes him out to be some sort of a criminal in one way or another, like he's some sort of um, thief, a burglar. He gets fitted up. And that's another great one as well, the uh, cameo from Cheech and Chong as the, uh, yeah. <laughs> as the burglars. It's great that he used them in there. Um, I, I think it's interesting as well. I just thinking back the brilliant intro, which you don't tend to get many of these brilliant intros anymore to films. But the neon artwork playing oh, yeah. through with the soundtrack and the music, the uh, classical music and the music, and it, it plays so well. And it obviously reflects the film later on. We get a lot of neon lighting throughout the film. These blue hues, yeah. and, uh, red those, shadow lights, all on those the streets. bar lights. That's it, and, and it, it's fantastic. And it made me think, you know, this is probably one of Scorsese's last kind of low-budget indie films. Yeah. Um, but this is really setting up what he's about to do. If you think of Casino and The Aviator and things that came later, yeah. that's the style, look, the colours, the almost like Las Vegas, the kind of full-on kind of yeah. gold power palette. And you can see it kind of being set up here. That's the stylistic change he's going towards. Yeah, I think there is an atmosphere of experimentation with, with the camera moves and with the editing as well, that, that fast-paced cutting. That's, like we said, it's, got a, it's a very pacey film. It moves along very quickly. And it's shot to do that as well, you know, with a lot of those moves. It is a stunning film to look at. And, um, you know, it is a great ensemble cast as well because a lot of those players there, um, you know, beyond Griffin Dunn and Rosanna Arquette, they're not A-list stars, but they're all known faces and they've all gone on, you know, I mean, you've got um, Terry Gar as Julie. Uh, I mean, she's been in so much stuff since, you know, she's really so recognisable. And uh, John Hurd as the bartender, he used to be in stuff all throughout the 80s and 90s. He was like one of those faces. Griffin Dunn's performance, you know, it definitely requires an amazing amount of praise, I think. Oh, God, yeah. He's able to really articulate the points of the story without even saying anything. Yeah. The, the expressions that man can pull on his face without it coming across as vaudeville or some no. cheesy, over-the-top uh, performance... It can really express um, some real emotions there. That's what I was saying to you about. I thought, uh, he, in a way, slightly reminiscent of Gene Hackman in that kind of reaction comedy. You know, like reacting to what other people are saying to him or doing to him. It's all in the eyes. It's all in that side glance, just the turn of the head, the disbelief. It's very subtle, but it's bloody hilarious. And that's what makes a performance a team player that can work with the cast around him and really pull it off, and yeah, without yeah. it being a you know a monologue all the time, and that's a true art of cinema, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing performance there. One thing I really love about it as well is that the original music in it—it's almost kind of synthesizer-y. It, in a way, it is reminiscent of that kind of you know Escape from New York, John Carpenter uh, soundtrack. It's almost and it's got a bit of a sinister edge to it. Only a few notes, and it's just every time that kicks in, you know he's got to get up and get running because you know hounds of hell are coming for him. So every time that sort of theme kicks in, it's almost like a sort of haunted house theme almost played on a sort of harpsichord you know that kind of that kind of music so that uh, after hours um gave me the opportunity to work with a composer again and that's the first time i, I worked with howard shore um and since then he was uh, our composer on um, gangs of new york uh, we had uh, very interesting for me working with howard he was um uh he 
worked into a very simple theme that kind of played up the game-like aspect of, of the movie, the sort of Chinese box within a box within a box within a box. Uh, and so I thought his score really reflected that and also reflected a kind of quiet paranoia that I think um, really enhanced the picture. Yeah, it, it was a fascinating soundtrack. I mean, you've got the original pieces, you say, these uh, kind of simp soundscapes almost that yeah. throughout it, but they're very sparse, but really reflective, I think, of New York City. But add into that, you know, you had some very famous classical pieces. You had famous songs like uh, The Monkey's Play at one point. Yeah. a couple of those great old uh, doo-wop uh, songs. Do what numbers, yeah. The Scorsese started to do that a hell of a lot with Goodfellas and became That's the it. king of the needle drop, as they say. And you kind of sit there thinking that this is the kind of painter's palette for what's to come. This is yeah. the, the benchmark. And it's I quite think fascinating also to see. It's, it's, it's quite a European film in many ways, and in, in the sense that he was including avant-garde scene with all those punks and everything that was going on there. That was very much an underground scene. And also the presence of the gay community, as even though possibly um, portrayed in um, what we would now see as a little bit stereotypical sense, especially those two guys in the bar dressed in all that sort of leather cap, uh, aviator and moustache kind of you know look like something out of a police academy or something but and of course there's the gay prostitute as well but really just to put those characters in there as the couple in the bar and one of the guys that he helps him on the street um, I thought was you know a really a brave thing to do in 1985 and it showed that Scorsese's inclusivity yeah it was um, progressive for its time um, you know, somewhat campy representation, but in a way that was kind of um, the style at the time. You could see where it was coming from, but uh, it was it was great to see that representation on the screen. And and really, there's plenty in there. You know, you think of the the powerful representation of the the sculptor in the beginning. Yeah. Who, when he first gets to the flat, you know, she's a real um, powerful feminine character. Yeah. Um, who ain't taking no shit. You know, it's a very progressive film yeah. um, for its time. And, and, yeah, it's definitely got that European vibe of, of what Soho probably would have felt like in that time, yeah. an inclusive area of the new avenues of what people are doing. Yeah, avant-garde sort of uh, community that's, you know, stays up late, does things all night, uh, obviously alternative lifestyles, but also all the usual foibles with the neighbourhood watch and the and the burglars. And it was kind of like a very kind of neighbourhood film in a way. I believe the, one of the original working titles for it was A Night in Soho. And I think that's the thing about it is a sort of New York movie, but particularly and specifically a Soho movie because it's like Soho acts as this kind of zone from which, like you were described as a labyrinth, from which he must escape. You know, uh, we'd think it's as simple as just hit the bricks and get walking home, but it sounds to everybody else like he lives far too far to be walking. You need a train or a taxi or something. So, in effect, he is trapped within this area. Yeah, it's that ponderance to go home, which also links very nicely, I think, the best joke in the film, without a shadow of a doubt, when she's talking in the cafe... And she says, I, I broke off my husband because every time he was into the Wizard of Oz and every time he, he came, he shouted, surrender Dorothy, <laughs> which it was fucking hilarious. Yeah. Um, 
but that is a theme that plays throughout the film. You don't really realise it um, until later on that he just wants to get home. He just wants to yeah. get home. He just wants to get home. It's Dorothy. It is, it's yeah. the Wizards. And you think that I think that's the brilliance. It's a really well written, tight script that really pulls all these elements together. And it's a brilliant gag, but it's not just there for the gag. It's there as a, a plot device. Yeah. Which is hard to do. And it's funny because everything that happens in it, even though it's somewhat far-fetched in some respects, it's still plausible. Everything that happens to him can, you know, there's no magic, there's no silly things that you might get in some films where he falls into some sort of curse. Uh, It's all done in that kind of um, realistic sense. And that's one of the... uh, things that makes it such a great film i think there is this funny little almost fairy tale that you know all of this crazy stuff happens to him but at the end of the day it's like well that's just another crazy night in new york because all the things he witnesses through the window as well there's all those bits like when he's sitting in her apartment and he looks across and there's two people having sex and you know he's kind of like what she says what did you say and he's like what I didn't say anything and then later on when he's hiding from the mob that are trying to catch him he's on that fire escape and he looks across into another window and that woman's shooting her husband and he makes that that's like a real sort of corny crack he says I'll probably get blamed for that as well but uh, it's, <laughs> yes. there's almost this sense from that that no matter where you turn in this place something crazy is going on people are either fighting or fucking or it's it's a crazy place. It's like he is, in a sense, in the danger zone. Yeah, it's a, it, it definitely gives a feeling of it's a never-ending cycle, which I think a lot of films of that era, perhaps of New York, present that feeling of this city doesn't end, it doesn't sleep, it doesn't stop. There is so many different characters, there is um, so many different places, and obviously so populous that you're going to get record numbers of murders, you're going to get record numbers of rapes, as well as all the other crazy stuff that happens and it does seem yeah you know we talk about the labyrinth of the film and the plot it's exactly that isn't it he keeps on turning a corner and seeing something that that appears that is just insane but as you say it makes sense it feels realistic you're not sitting there going oh i don't believe this this is silly this is over the top or far-fetched it goes from the ridiculous to the sublime but in in such a way that you just go with it it's like life can be like that sometimes you you know these are the kind of stories we tell when someone says what's happened and you say well you won't believe it but you you won't believe the day (laughs) i've had or 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 the night i've had in his case exactly i mean you know to sort of sum up talking about it i think um for me it represents the kind of film that the coen brothers are very famous for making that kind of quirky edge to it you know i mean there's scenes in the loft there where with the papier-mâché sculpture that remind me of jeffrey lebowski going to meet maud lebowski for the first time and she's got that crazy rig set up in her apartment and she's doing that abstract painting and you know there's similarities there between that and and these kind of quirky independent features that uh, other people have kind of become famous for in in the stead of that kind of film but that was like Scorsese's little like you said his last great little indie film where he got to do whatever he wanted to do he got to make the film he wanted to make you know yeah it's a very I think you can see throughout it that he had fun making it yeah in a way and he was putting his his heart into it and it's very much a a him film in a way Um, did you spot his cameo in there Yes, he was uh, the guy flashing the light, wasn't he? That's in the, right, in the he was on that uh, spotlight in, in Club Berlin. 
It's nice. He doesn't. He doesn't always do a cameo like uh, Hitchcock did, but he has done quite a few, and uh, that's a nice little blink and you'll miss it one. A bit like the one in Taxi Driver where he's just sat there outside the uh, uh, Palatine um, uh, campaign yeah. office, and she just walks past him. And who doesn't love a uh, who doesn't love a cameo from the director? <laughs> it's always good. Who shouldn't this thing? Um, yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating film, really. I think very different. It's a, it's interesting because it stands almost alone at that time. I think it's not. Yeah. I can't not really like place it with else. another film. No. Yeah. Often you kind of sit there and go, oh, it's like this or it's like that. Another director I'd liken that style to is possibly someone like Jim Jarmusch can make that kind of film where, you know, on paper not a lot happens. Oh, one guy has a has a mad night in Soho and can't get home, but really everything happens, you know. It's, uh, there's so much packed in there. And Jim Jarmusch, is, I think, is, has made films like that, you know, a bit like Down by Law or something like that. that it's just got that sort of quirky edge to it. The humour is a, is a, a little bit more, you know, sarcastic, and it's much more of a European style than the Americans uh, usually, usually. Yeah, because it's with. not it's not your laugh out loud um, kind of gag films, you know. Um, I think it is laugh out loud, sort of but it, if you're in, if you're of a certain sense of humor yeah because i you know some of that them moments do make me laugh out loud but i could totally see what you mean that some people would just go oh i don't get it what it, what's funny about that no yeah the jokes aren't set up for you in that way the jokes are in the narrative yeah. and and you've got to be paid attention to to laugh it's at much it, more nuanced and i think you know uh sometimes that it, you can just if it, it can just catch you off guard and strike you funny even sometimes you're laughing and you yeah. shouldn't be laughing like when he's talking to her and he's trying to explain why he ran off the first time and he's you don't even realize he's talking to a a stiff cuz she's she's topped herself she's lying there she's dead. dead and then he goes he's got this ob- which is hilarious. see this is another theme we didn't discuss yet in there that we didn't pick up on this thing he's got about burns he's telling kiki mm. the story about when he was a kid and he uh, he got blindfolded to get taken through the burns unit and something's about to happen and just before we find out he gets interrupted but then there's this theme of of like he thinks he's suspicious she's got some terrible burns because she's got this book about a third degree burns and she's got this um prescription that's supposed to uh help with um burns and she brings the candle back to the room and then later on um there's the thing about a lot of subtle pretty dark gags there oh there is and he's got this obsession with getting burned and, and fire so there's that kind of side of that that's like represents hell and fire and brimstone he's, yeah he's terrified of being burned he's terrified of being a bad person and uh ultimately ending up in hell <laughs> one could forever how much he tries it always ends up badly yeah yeah it's an interesting film as i say there's not really many things i could compare it to because it is very unique Maybe it's got a bit of a vibe of something like Twilight Zone, um, some of the more contemporary ones. But yeah, very funny, I think brilliant performances and a very tight film. I didn't sit there thinking there was wasted moments on screen. Even though Uh, it's very, like we said, it's cyclical, it keeps going round in a circle and a lot of the themes repeat. He ends up in another apartment with a different woman, he wants to use the phone, he ends up in the bathroom looking himself in the mirror. But it's, it's all nuanced and layered, it's like... You know, it's it's a natural progression, so 
in a way that's that's what makes it tick it's like a revolving yeah. wheel so after dissecting the uh, minute detail of uh, after hours what would you give it out of 10 Oh, for me, it's a definite 9 on 10. I think that's what I did give it on IMDb. I can check that for you. Because <laughs> as, as you know, I have uh, put all of the films I've, I've seen into a watch list on IMDb. And I'm currently up to 1,823 films. Those are rookie numbers, kid. Yeah, we've got to really pump those numbers. <laughs> oh, there it is, After Hours. I gave After Hours, oh, it should be... Yeah, I gave it a nine. It's got a 7.7 average on IMDb. Not sure what Rotten Tomatoes gives it, but for me it's a definite nine because I I watched it when I was very young and I just loved it. I just loved the night movie. I loved the just tell me a story. This guy, who is he? Where's he going to go? God knows what he's going to get up to. Gosh, yeah, I I must have seen it about ten times. So it's a nine on ten for me. What about you? I think, um, think it's a very good film. A very, very good film. And it's definitely uh, one to recommend to people, absolutely. I think for me, it's probably it's probably a 7.5 for me. There are other Scorsese films I prefer. Sure. This is definitely up there. I mean, Scorsese's not really done many that I don't like. But it's a very, very, very good film. Um, I think I'm quite conservative on my numbers for... Yeah, uh, yeah of course. For, for pumping up films so I think something like a 7.5 is probably about right for me um, yeah. I mean that's what the IMDB gives it it's on a 7.7 there so you're giving it a pretty close to what you yeah. know, it is probably worthy of on an average scale I'd give it a 9 just because it's just one of my favourites you know you get these films they could be could be anything oh that touch if, you yeah if, if, that's well it. yeah if, I think for me it's um, I watched it when I was young so it's one of those films I've got a kind of nostalgia with it myself now, and it has it's aged the curse well. Of nostalgia. It's aged well. Now I look at it, and the styles are dated, and Griffin Dunn is now younger than I was, uh, than I am now. But when I first watched it, obviously I was only about fourteen or something, and you know he's probably not he's not quite thirty in this film. And uh, now I watch it, and he's he's a young man in it, but. It's still a great But in a film. way, the, the dated styles are, are the charm of it. You know, I loved seeing the 80s computers, oh, the, the fashion. It was brilliant. And I think, um, and, and yeah. I, I agree with that completely, it hasn't aged really. I've seen some other films recently, been rewatching some films from that period, and you go, oh, you know, that didn't, that didn't go so well now. But that looks fantastic. Uh, we watched a great, you know, kind yeah. of Blu ray version of it. But it, it did look. Stunning. Um, with, yeah, it's got style. See, style never that's dies. It. When you, when you've got a purpose in what you're making, it, it will be timeless. So there we are. That's it for this episode in our favourite films collection. It's been Greg Fisher talking with Dave Roberts. I hope you can join us again for another Cinema Plus podcast. In the meantime, be sure to hit us up on moremovies.co.uk and come and say hello on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, Thanks for listening, and that's a wrap.